I would love to maybe track back a little bit to how you had your first exposure to heroin. Yeah, I mean, I, I, my, my first experience was, um, it was a, it was a spot in Shepherd's Bush that I lived in in South Africa Road. I was thinking, like, this is fucking great. I mean, I was like, because you know, I'd kind of been listening to, if you listen to Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground and all that sort of stuff, you can, you're, you're into the, um, you're into the enigma of it all when you're, you're obsessed and seduced with it. And my mate and I have been just, we're just thinking, like, we love some of that. So we basically didn't. We just kind of sort of joined in. Maybe about the first three or four months. So I was doing it reasonably regularly, not not compulsively. Um, because I did. I had a notion then that nothing this good comes without a price. I got into basically writing stories. The stories, you know, they became transporting. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Now we know Irvine Welsh for his enormously popular novels such as Train Spotting, The Acid House Filth, Porn Glue, and Skag Boys. His first work has since been adapted into the cult classic 1996 film Train Spotting, consistently ranked as one of the top 10 British films of all time and recently followed by its 2017 sequel T2 Train Spotting. Whether Irvine is switching between the punk and disco subcultures of 1980s London, releasing the most shoplifted novel in British publishing history, or learning the difference between Bay Area and Appalachian meth, his writing journey has been anything but traditional. But before he transformed Scotland's literary scene, and before he got on and off heroin, Irvine was a little kid with a rebellious streak, moving from one tenement flat to another. I want to go back before um, all of this, um, and talk a little bit about where you grew up and some of your earliest memories. Right. Um, my earliest memory was uh, we lived in a tenement flat in Leith, and I think it was Prince Regent Street when I was a kid. And I, I, I was a toddler, and this, this floor was very... It took me a while to learn to walk because the floor was very sloping. You know, the, the, um, there was subsidence in the, uh, in the buildings, and the floor sloped a bit, so it kind of bumped. I wasn't too steady on my feet, and uh, still, still not too steady on my feet right now. You know, so um, not a lot of change there. Uh, and then when I got to, um, when I got to about three, four, we moved to, uh, and we lived in what were called the prefabs, which were prefabricated houses. You just built them on the back and took them on the back of a lorry and stuck them down in these fields across the road from the gas works, as they were then. In Leith uh, was the old port of Edinburgh, and it was. Um, yeah, it was built around the shipyards and the docks and the merchant fleet. There's not a lot of street life. When I was a kid, there was a lot of street life there because, you know, kids would go out and play and just hang around. Then we got older, you'd hang around the streets. And it was, um, it was very social. It was very, you know, it was like the weekends were very busy. You know, kids would be playing outside, playing football in the street. Um, and, um, you know, you see guys, you see, you, you see the... The, the older the old guys coming back from the pub and all that and maybe singing and all that and having a bit of a laugh and or maybe coming back from the football and kind of have hearts and shouting at each other and all that on the way home. So so it was quite a vibrant community and um, it's a general thing you know that um, 
kids are much more oriented towards kind of by the internet and you know, their, their bedrooms that they don't really collectively kind of hang around in the streets together. But like sometimes I feel like not everyone uh, would want you to play football in the streets. Can you tell me uh, about your your maybe first criminal record? Yeah, I mean, I've got arrested at eight years old and the, um, there's a bunch of us who were only... We just we just moved into Muras from building them and we were kicking a ball around. There was wasn't any no ball game sign. But we just um we just started kicking this ball around and then, you know, a couple of police cars came down, um, took all our details and uh we thought that was the end of it. They were just giving us a selling off. But we got a summons from the court, we had to appear in court at eight years old and uh, we were uh, we were formally charged and we went up and we were given a we were given a technical admonishment by the judge, but it meant we had it meant we had criminal records. It meant we had these that was on our record as um as a, as a convicted criminal, basically eight years old. What did you think of that when you were when you were a kid? Like, did you do you remember thinking anything about that? In retrospect, it was one of the best things that happened to me because it gave me a bit of attitude, basically. <laughs> And uh, it was, you know, it's like um, I think you can either you can either sort of, but something like that happens as a kid. You can either doff your cap or you can kind of be resistant to it. You can kind of you can get a bit of like, you can say, "Fuck all you bastards!" Like you know, I'm, you know, it's like um, I, I'll do exactly what I like when I like, and I'm not putting up any fucking shit from anybody. What does that resistance look like? Like when, as you were when you're when you when you say like resistance, like would you just get into trouble? You just think, fuck that, I'm going to hang out, we're going to kind of um, cause havoc outside the library, we're going to sort of, um, you know, we're just, we're just going to be general fucking little bad bastards in the, in the, you know, in the scheme. And um, if there's anything we can see that we can steal, we'll have a go at stealing it, basically. Uh, what happens in that situation is you usually get another brush with the law and then you, um, and then you kind of straighten, straighten out a bit. But, um, I never did, you know, I just, I, I sort of uh, was always fortunate and kind of quite sly and managed to avoid most of the the contact with the police. So if I say so myself, I was quite a gifted shoplifter. And you also said, you know, amongst like stealing um, and just and just causing trouble in general, you it seemed with the sniffing glue, you were also experimenting a little bit with like mind altering drugs and substances was that something that was you were aware of and like what was that like in your community yeah and it's like that that came that sort of um i mean the culture where i was when i was growing up and i was in my teens and I was getting to that kind of sort of stage where you're you're looking for drinking possibilities and all that you know there was um it was basically it was drink it was like cider and sort of um kind of cheap wines and all that that were the that were the you know rather than drugs there was no when I when I was very young and you know like 16 you know 15 16 just getting really interested in um intoxication there was no drugs at all in the scheme not even cannabis or anything like that which is completely unknown I was 16 and I got a, I was a terrible um you know I left school with no qualifications at all but um for some reason I don't know why um I got a job uh, as uh, an apprentice television mechanic, TV and radio mechanic, uh, but she had absolutely no aptitude for it. It was just one of those um, bizarre kind of things that they, they, they just thought, well, you know, um, I don't know what the, the, the line of thought was. It was probably like, um, 
I was always able to, to verbalize quite well and to kind of talk a good fight. So they must have kind of said something really, they must have had a really stupid line of thought like, you know, you seem quite intelligent, therefore um, you should be suited for a science type of thing uh, without any, you know, without any recourse to any kind of, um, you know, sort of um, qualifications of raise that I had or whatever. I enjoyed kind of other, you know, being with other apprentices and hanging out and having a laugh and it was a crash course and more alcohol kind of um, fortunately very fortunately for me is is that um, I had an auntie and uncle who lived in London they lived in West London and Southall and I'd been going down there in the summers um, and then when the, the whole punk thing kicked off the, the explosion of punk rock like you know led by you know bands like the Pistols and the Clash but also just, just about every band at the time you know like um, you know Susie and the Banshees the Subway Sect you know just loads and loads and loads of really kind of Crazy stuff basically was going to happen, and loads of bands were playing. Everybody was in a band, and uh, I was down in Southall, and I was getting the two or seven bus into Soho, um, practically every night, and hanging out at places like the Marquee and the the Vortex, uh, and having the the time of my life. You know, meet, kind of meeting all these people from all over. Why do you think the music drew so many people to it? And also, like, what was the uh, thought process and the opinion of people maybe outside that scene, like what was like maybe like the the working man's or like the posh people's perception of this music that was going on. It's one thing every generational thing nobody actually gets it at all. It just seems a really strange kind of alien thing. The dress was different. The, you know that you know it, like um, it's like my dad's generation. They always dressed up to go to the pub, even if they're just going to the pub with their mates. They put a suit on and all that kind of stuff. Whereas we were dressing in kind of like leather jackets and sort of um, safety pins and sort of, um, you know, rolling around the dog shit and everything. You know, we're just doing, try, trying to be as objectionable, as obnoxious as possible. Um, and then it was like, um, you know, that was us. It was a great education for about six months, but I was, I was interested in, I love disco music. I love dance music. I love disco as well. And I thought punk and disco were just completely, you know, you were either in one cult or the other, they were complete anathema to each other. And I loved, I love going to, I love getting talked up and going to disco. I was, I was like, a, I'd have a, a kind of, almost like a, a John Travolta type kind of white suit on kind of on Friday night and I'd be going out. And then Saturday night I'd be, you know, I'd be the football then going to some punk club and all that, you know. So it was kind of, you know, you knew, to me, it was like you could get, you couldn't really get away with that in Edinburgh because people would see you at Edinburgh and go like, "I thought you were a fucking punk, look at you, fucking disco pods and all that." But you could in London, you could just in you know, London, you could have any identity you wanted. You could mix and match. You could kind of, um, you could bounce around and you could say, "Well, I'm going to go to this soul club, or I mean, I'm going to be a mod just now for a few weeks and get into that, or I'm going to, you know, or I'm going to, um, I'm going to fire into punk and." Um, you know, it's like, so all this kind of stuff was available. London was this kind of cultural supermarket where everybody sort of came and... Did you feel like you needed to leave your, like, to like to, to go to where the epicenter of, of punk was happening? I didn't really think of it that way at the time. I mean, it was massively beneficial, but I think all travel is, is beneficial for you. I think it's it really good to get away from your own environment. Um because you appreciate it so much more when you go back, you know. I mean, everybody, when, they, when you're younger, you grow up and you think, 
your place is really boring and, every, and all the action is happening somewhere else. And then you actually realize, well, where you come from is actually the most fucking weird, eccentric place ever. And it's just this rich tapestry of madness that uh, you really enjoy kind of re-exploring. But um, you don't really feel that way at the time when you're young. It just becomes like, you know, I want to see something else. I've seen this, I want to see something different. I was doing a lot of kind of crap jobs in London. I was working on building sites. I was working, um, I was, you know, I was working at hotel kitchens, doing portering. I worked at the Savoy for a while. And then you were, I was living for the evening. You're living for the evening when you go out to a gig or go to see a band or go to a club. Uh, and that was, that was it. That was all that I, I really wanted, basically. I just wanted to enjoy sort of going out. I would love to maybe track back a little bit to, how you had your first exposure to heroin? Yeah, I mean, I, I, my my first experience was um, it was a it was a spot in Shepherd's Bush that I lived in in South Africa Road. I was thinking, like, this is fucking great. I mean, I was like, because you know, I'd kind of been listening to, you'd be listening to Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground and all that sort of stuff. You can you're you're into the um, you're into the enigma of it all. And you're you're obsessed and seduced with it. And my mate and I have been just we're, we're just thinking like. We love some of that. So we basically didn't. We just kind of sort of joined in. Maybe about the first three or four months. So I was doing it reasonably regularly, not not compulsively. Um, because I did. I had a notion then that nothing this good comes without a price. You know, there's going to be some kind of big decline. What was that feeling? Well, for me, it was all... I always felt, I always felt when I had really good scar. It was like, you know, when you're... Like, if you're really fucked, you're lying in the bath, and you're just kind of, you know, you're just like, this is great, and you know, everything is just so, you know, I just felt like that about him, with a tremendous sense of um, an idea that everything was just great, nothing can bother me, nothing can touch me, all my concerns, all the, you know, things I've been worrying about, bills, about sort of um, kind of girlfriend issues and arguments, and all that's gone, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, the problem is it all comes back with a vengeance when you sort of and you're 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 in this you're you're starting to get sick and in withdrawal, um, and that sort of um that carried on basically. I got kind of uh, I kind of started to up my intake and it went on for um, and I thought I mean to me I thought I was only um I would only have classed myself as an addict for maybe about that one summer and um. I don't think I was. I think I was deluding myself. I think probably for a bit longer. So could you tell me how you actually got off heroin? I just felt that um, one of the things that kind of uh, I noticed it was really affecting my my life. It was like um, one of my um, my one of my favorite uncle had died, and um, and then uh, his wife died a few. About uh, his wife died after. Remember, I'm saying to my mum. Um, you know, coming up to, to Edinburgh, I said, that was terrible, but Auntie Betty dying, like, you know, I feel so sorry for Uncle Willie, he'll be absolutely gutted, but, you know, because Uncle Willie died six months ago, you know, so it's like, where the fuck were you? You've kind of, you've, you've absented yourself from a whole life, you know, you've not done it willfully, I've just been in a, a completely different place, you know? And I thought, well, that's not acceptable to, to disappear, you know, and you've just gone away and you've left them through, what, and what are you doing? You're just living in this, the selfish, narcissistic kind of smart kid life where you're sitting on a, a mattress talking shit about all the, the great albums that you'll make and the great films that you that you'll write and the great books that you write and all that. Just all fucking bullshit. You know, get off your arse and get off the drums and do it. You know, so um, I think that um, 
I didn't really get on with, I tried reduction cures and methadones and rehabs and all that kind of stuff. And I just got you no know, buying stock to the cold turkey, uh, get it out of your system. And uh, once you get two or three weeks done, uh, you know, you know you've cracked it, you've got past it. And uh, for me, it was like there was no, absolutely no desire to go back. It was just like something that, um, it was almost, it was almost like, you know, when I see a lot of my mates now, they're, they're, you know, they're getting all, you know, they're getting to the age for a lot of them are getting things wrong with them, you know, they're getting all these kind of hip replacement stuff and all that. And to me, it was like kind of going in for a hip replacement, like, you know, I've got to get this fucking thing done, but, you know, I can't be bothered. I'm doing other things and all that, but it's, it's sore and it's bugging me. It's holding me back. So I'll just go in and do it, you know. And that's really how I felt about it. I felt, I just want to get this done and get out the fucking road, basically. Can you tell me about, like, the death of your father, too? I mean, these things, like the, the, the death of a parent, just uh, all for everybody is a terrible thing. You know, it's one of the it's one of the um, the marker events of your life, and I think you know, you have to you have to allow yourself to be changed by it. You know, you you have to sort of um, accept that it's changed and it, it's changed you. I think it it kind of did two things for me really. It sort of um, it made me get myself together. You know, realize that life is short, basically. Um, and it, you know, it can be very, very short. You know, the, my dad was like kind of um, early fifties when he died, and now, I mean, at the time I thought that was quite old, but now I think it's no age at all. You know, um, and um, it was, you know, so I think. But I think what happens is that um, the interesting thing is that I think it kind of, um, I think it made me quite fearless. I think you know, you, you know, when I was, when I was like. In my twenties, I thought, "Fuck, my dad's dead. This is a this is a terrible thing. How am I going to get past this?" And I thought, "Well, I can really do what I like now. I won't um, instead of you know, I, I won't be in a position whereby um, I can disappoint him in any way or can, can hurt him in any way by what I do." And it did make me quite fearless and quite reckless. And I think that recklessness was 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 channeled into a kind of acting out hedonism for a while. And then I kind of, I thought, well, you know, I mean, it's like, I, I kind of feel that what, what would, what would he want me to do? How would he want me to be, basically? And, and he want, he'd want me to, to, to try and maximize my potential. I've got to make that into a driving force in my life. I've got to try to do something creative. And it fed into the music and I really, Tried hard with the music, but it just never took off. But fortunately, what did come out of the music was that um, I was writing ballads, and um, the I just thought ballads are just stories. Just get rid of the music and focus on the actual stories themselves. You know, so uh, I got into uh, I got into basically writing stories, uh, and uh, the stories, you know, they became transporting. How do you think about actually making this into something that will reach people? Yeah, I mean, I think I've got people like um, Duncan and Kevin and Barry to thank for that because they were uh, they all started publishing books and they started they they were kind of um, it was a big thing about a Scottish Renaissance in literature and Kevin had this thing that um, he had all this performance stuff, open mic kind of thing, stuff and all that. I would go up and perform bits of the stuff that I'd written. Um, and everybody was saying this is really good this is good shit and all that this is like really 
kind of um, something different to what we've, we've been used to seeing, to, to publish little bits of stories in different magazines. And he'd seen some of them and he said, have you got a novel? And I kind of lied and said, yeah, I've got a novel. You know, so I um, thought I'd better get one now and then, you know, so I smashed out this book and I didn't know, I mean, I, like, you're supposed to have 100,000 words in a novel. I had 300,000. So I just chopped out the middle part and I wrote a high standing on it. Um, and it was just an accident, really, because I had all the origin stories of how they got to that point. That was that became Sky Boys. And, and the others, the later stuff, because, you know, the stuff I've still got kicking around. But um, the bit in the middle was great because it just went right into their lives without explaining anything about how they got to that point. I think it was quite a, an unsettling thing for the reader to be pushed into this world that they knew was there, but yeah, they didn't really um, have much in-depth knowledge of what went on there. I didn't really know if it would work or not. I just wanted to get the thing done because, um, uh, and it came, you know, it, I think I put it in in 1991 and it came out in 1993, which was like, and I thought, no one's going to read this book. It was a kind of novel of the late 80s, basically. It was a kind of 80s heroine novel and now it's like 93 it's coming out. I just thought nobody's going to be interested in it. It's going to be old time. Um, but hope, thankfully I was wrong. Big interest in it right from the start. When do you start seeing that it might be successful? Um, I think that uh, you know you get the you know the, you get the the sort of royalty checks every six months, and um, the first couple were pretty small. It was just like I thought I'm going to make a bit of bin money here, and you know, it's like first you know, you, the first one was about kind of five hundred quid or something, which is quite a bit of money back then. It was a nice little kind of thing, you know. And then the next one was a couple of grand, and then. Night's one was eight grand, and then it was like kind of, you know, it was 16 grand, and then it was like, um, it just kept getting bigger and bigger. You know, I remember I got one for half a million quid, came through, and I just thought, fuck, this is great. You know, how did that, that deal start? Well, yeah, they, I mean, they just got in touch, and they had, they, you know, they had, I was living in Amsterdam at the time, and um, they had uh, done Shallow Grave, and they sent me a screening of Shallow Grave, and, uh, and I thought, well, the characters are a bit posh, but I like the energy. So I thought my characters and this energy, you know, it would be, it would be a great transfer to, to cinema of that style. And I like the way that um, I like the way they, they didn't see it as a, as a sort of kind of piece of social realism. They didn't see the characters as victims. They saw it as a youth movie about people being young and being stupid. And that was what I wanted it to be about, you know. And that this they. they Believed in the the, the you know the, the story and the, the the way that it was constructed, uh, so it was fabulous. It was great. It was a real kind of um, it was a real meeting of minds. Really, it just worked. To, you know, I, I got on like a house on fire with the three of them. So you're working with the train spotting team um, for the film, uh, and the budget is like relatively small, right? It's like one and a half million. So when it opens, like, what are you expecting this film to do? Then off cuts of it, I thought, this is going to be fucking great. It's just going to smash everybody away. You know, and I remember talking to Andrew, the producer, and he was going, no, well, if it does have as good as Shallow Grave, I'll be said, like, fuck Shallow Grave. It's going to blow all that shit away. This is going to go fucking molten. Um, and, the, you know, the reason I said that is because there's such great performances and great energy, and it looked brilliant as well. And that's the thing that's like, um, and it was so visually creative too, you know, and, I think the you know the the great thing about Daddy as a director is that 
he hate he doesn't like to throw money at things. He doesn't like throwing money at problems. He you because know, he can if you start throwing money at things or start CGI and everything and kind of you know special effects and everything, it all looks the fucking same. It looks like shit basically, like you know high tech kind of stuff. But it's just not. There's no soul in it. There's no heart in it. Um, and he was the very same with train spotting too. You know, he he, he you know Sony wanted to give us like something like kind of um, thirty million, you know, because they're they're very nervous with small budget stuff because they're a corporation. Or like, never go. And well, I may have managed to spend about ten million, but you can never spend thirty million on a film like that without it being absolutely fucking shit. It expanded to 357 screens, made 16.4 million in North America. Had like one of the biggest grossing films of 1996. Like it was, it was an insane release. You know, it, it did open up um, a lot, uh, a lot to me. But I think you know, you you have to, you have to see the original writing, the original characters, as something in themselves, and away from the you know the whole kind of process of commercialization because it's not really yours you can't you can't put a break on that kind of thing it just you know it just slides into it you know everything pays their own, its own level and you don't want to be a curator of your own stuff basically you know you don't want to take responsibility you know it's responsibility all this nonsense about keeping it real you can't keep something real when it becomes big basically you know it just evolves into what it is all you can do is be is go back to the original text and say this stands up as a novel. So did all this success change how you viewed writing? I think it did. It confidence to try different things. Um, and I was always, you know, I was, like, was experimenting quite a lot with uh, different types of fiction, you know, uh, with, with the early books like Marble Stop, Nightmares and Filth and all that. Um, I remember that um, I kind of, I got quite arrogant and up myself for a bit. Uh, I had this... Um, I wanted to do this experimental novel. I did all this stuff, like I kind of photocopied my gospel about 10, you know, about 20 times. And uh, and I got people to write these weird poems and I spliced them into this. And I had this, this nonsense kind of, you know, I, I looked at this nonsense novel and I gave it to my um, publisher. They said, look, this is a pile of shit. I'm not fucking publishing it. Stop showing off. Write the fucking novel you want to write. When you, he said that, what was your response initially? I wanted to burst into tears because you kind of think that, you know, you believe your own propaganda and you think that, um, fuck me, I can write anything, I can do anything. Um, and you just, you know, I, and what happens, I just completely lost focus. Uh, I just thought that um, I could do all I could, you know, that I had some notion of what this was going to be and it just didn't work out at all, you know. So uh, you have to be bold and you have to be prepared to fail basically, you know, I think it's, um, it's uh, you know, I think failure is uh, the most important thing you can embrace because that's where you learn. You don't learn anything at all from success. I feel like the way you research some of, of your your stories is, is pretty interesting. And you were researching this show for, for HBO um, in West Virginia. Um, could you tell me about how you came up with a concept for that show and then actually how you went in researching it? We wanted to do something set in Ireland, and it was HBO was very. I mean, you now everything's global, kind of global streaming platforms, but uh, HBO kind of led the way, and it was a very, very much an American concern at the time. We basically moved this thing to the Appalachians, um, and we 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 redid a kind of Hatfields and versus McCoys type um, war between two families, but 
we would actually settle it with bare knuckle fights. That was the that was the premise of the thing. Uh, I remember the pre-interview talking about like hanging out with like crystal meth addicts. Yeah. How, how did that come about? Yeah, I remember I got to this. Uh, I was in a small town in West Virginia, and um, I remember um, ended up going to this party, which was like a kind of mad kind of sort of porch. Basically a mad hillbilly party, you know, it was really, it was like kind of interesting to see really poor people in America, like Calcutta, like kind of poor white people, kind of, you know, kids walking around barefoot and all that, really, really poor, this town, and it was like everything had been taken out of it, you know, all the the forests had been taken away, the, um, the it was all, um, you know, they, they had the open cast lighting when they just cut the top and all that, and it was like, it was, the whole place had been massively kind of colonized in a in a in a, in a way. It had been victim of kind of internal imperialism, strangely, uh, and it was really it was like it was very much a big meth town basically. Uh, and I went to um, I went to this party and uh, everybody was doing meth and all that, and I was like I don't, don't want to fucking touch crystal meth, you know. And I'd done this. Um, the last time I'd done it was years ago. It was in the, a bulletproof cruise in San Francisco, and it was like I was wired for for hours and hours, you know, sort of like um, I could barely, you know, I couldn't blink for hours. And um, and I thought I've got to take this because all these guys are expecting me to, you know, to, to do this. And um, and they were like, you know, fuck all that. Yeah, I said I had, I had this in San Francisco. I'd done all of it. But fuck all your hippie shit, boy. Like, oh, this is the best fucking shit you ever taken in your life. This is all hillbilly, homemade bastard stuff. So um, they put they, they put this out, and uh, I took this I took this crystal meth, and it was like, you know, it was so fucking tepid compared to the San Francisco stuff that I had. I mean, I ended up taking loads of it just to try and get the same impact I got with the the hippie stuff on the bulletproof glues. So, like, is that what research usually looks like for you? <laughs> no, it's not really. I mean, one of the things, you know, it's like, um, Twitter was great because it's like, you used to have to, I used to have to spend a lot of time with fucking nutcases in pubs, and now you can just go online. How do you find these people, though? They find you. They find you, you can't, you know, it's like every fucking band in the world will find you if you've written the book like Trainspotting or whatever. And it is, you know, and it's like, you can go into somebody's feed on Twitter and you can see like um, a whole world of pain, you know, everybody just like trying to, we're bonding with these people because they support the same football team as us and we're bonding with these people because they, they have the same kind of politics as us. And you go into this fucking crackpot world of just kind of going into their accounts and looking at their, their tweets and looking at who they're tweeting to and what they're tweeting about. And it's fucking great because you don't have to spend time with them in a bar having them fucking talking all this shit in your head, you can you can do it very selectively. And you can you can find them um, you, you can create the most crackpot characters just from somebody's Twitter account. Do you think you like look for those kind of uh this, those crazy experiences? I'll tell you when I was younger, you know, there was there's maybe there was maybe a, again it's so much about the subconscious. I never kinda of thought of myself as a writer, but I did want to have experiences basically. Um, and I felt probably within just under the threshold of my consciousness, I felt that these experiences were going to do me good in some way. They were going to they were going to be something that I could make something out of. I could recount. I could understand the world a bit better. I could understand different characters in the world a bit better. I could construct a kind of fictional universe or a fictional place 
that's your raw material as a writer. That's what you're you're working with. And I taught in Chicago for six months, and remember saying to a lot of the the the, the young kids in the MFA program, said like, you know, you're wasting your fucking time. You know, get off down to Mexico and I'll sort of you know steal a convertible or just get, even mundane. They just work in a bar or a cafe and all that. You're wasting your time here. You're wasting your parents' money, basically. Obviously, the dean at the university wasn't too happy. Getting people in the door and getting them to pay their money for this fees. And what else on that? Fair enough. But getting back to your story, I'd love to maybe touch on what you are most excited for today. Um, I think I'm excited about the, the transport and musical because we've actually made it darker than the book. If, you know, I think because it's, you know, because it's a musical format, we have to play around with it a bit. We have to, we can't make it too cheesy. We have to make it quite hard edged. And um, so I think that's, that's something that really excites me. And um, I'm working with Brett Easton Ellis on a, a radio show we're doing together, um, which is like, um, it's a kind of intergenerational war sort of thing. And uh, that's really coming together quite well. I'm really enjoying the process of, of working with Brett. Um, and I'm doing with, you know, my, my, my long-term screen partner, Dean Cavan, and I are working with Jonas Ackerland, who's a great Swedish director, a really good friend. And we're doing this thing about um, Berlin and the, Ber- you know, the, the, the techno tribes of Berlin before the fall of the Berlin Wall and after the fall of the Berlin Wall. I'm doing a, a new book about, you know, I've got all these stories, these kind of transporting stories, been between transporting and porno about all these guys and what they're up to. And I've realized it's all about them basically trying to negotiate love, you know, falling in love in their 20s and working out what they do about it and um, what their kind of, you know, their views and all this are. So it's like, in it, it's a bizarre romance book about all these kind of characters, basically, but in a way that they're, they're more emotionally exposed. I think, like, to, to wrap up, like, if you were to give advice to someone who wants to be a writer... What uh, advice would you give to someone at like the beginning of their writing journey? I would say to them, like, you have to know yourself and know that you want to spend a lot of time on your own. You have to be enough of an egotist to, to really believe that what you say is important and other people are going to be interested. You know, so that assumes quite a, a sort of narcissistic, egotistical thing. But you also have to um, you also have to get past yourself, otherwise you're not going to write anything good. You're just going to sort of write kind of self grandizing nonsense, and you have to kind of really get past yourself to be a writer. And to do that, you've got to spend a lot of time on your own. You've got to, you know. And I've known so many um, people who they've talked a great novel from a bar stool. You know, they've talked a great uh, screenplay from a bar stool, but you sit them down away from an audience, and they're completely fucked. They can't just concentrate, they just go to pieces, you know. So you've got to know yourself. You've got to set yourself up for a world of pain if you can't sit down in a room yourself and just knock out page after page after page after page. And you have to be a bit of a boring fucker. You know, you're in this world with um, all these people that don't exist, you know, and you just have to get this out onto the page. And it takes it can take a long time, you know. You can, you're taking yourself away from the, the real world. And, you know, I get... I get anxious, I think I've got to finish this book because everybody's partying, it's festival season, having a great time and all that now. And sitting there being a boring fucker. But I love it, you know, I love doing it. And you've got all that, you've got to really have that in your in your arsenal. Thank you so much for listening. 
If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki Mikawa, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menno. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Liu, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.